This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Long Shot Podcast, brought to you by 342 Productions. I'm your host, Duncan Robinson. Here with my good friend, as always, Davis Patrick Reed, uh, my beloved co-host. And we are Whoa. checking in on a different coast. We're on the West Coast, yes. uh, located in Southern California. Going to keep it as, as vague as possible. But mm-hmm. we're checking in from our new digs, basically. Um, temporary residents out here. Uh, we're out here for the foreseeable future. We'll leave it open-ended. Yeah. Don't need to put a closing date on it. No, no, no. Uh, but we're excited to be here and excited to be back in person Last week was fun, but over Zoom is over Zoom, you yeah. know, and, and now we're live uh, in the flesh, not live, previously recorded, but nonetheless, hope you're enjoying this. And uh, we're back, which is fun. We got a great episode for you. We're just going to kind of let it go here for who knows how long. Yeah. And then we have a great interview with Brian Scalbrini, which was done over Zoom previously yep. last week uh, when we were apart. But hopefully moving forward, all of our interviews will be in person. We'll get a nice little group dynamic going and we'll have some fun. Yeah, the uh, the vibes are right here in Los Angeles. Uh, the vibes are immaculate, I think some some might say. Sh- shout out to Old Man the Three. I think Jalen yeah. Brunson maybe yes. said that. The vibes sure. are immaculate. Uh, no, there's positive energy for sure. Um, it's It's been fun being out here. Definitely a, a different change of pace from, from Miami. And then also, obviously, uh, it's bittersweet in that there's playoff basketball going on in that I would love to still be playing in that. But nonetheless, uh, also nice to kind of catch a breath and – you know, really establish uh, myself in this this off season and approach my training um, with with diligence and persistence, and hopefully come back next year. Well, not hopefully, I, I will come back next year uh, a different and <laughs> better be a player. Not hopefully, um, but yeah, it's it's been enjoyable. Basically, out here for training purposes, uh, I've had the opportunity to connect with some really really great trainers, uh, both on the court, off the court. And just from like a PT recovery standpoint, so I'm I'm really excited about that. It's just temporary, like I said. Um, above all else, just to try to get a you know a little change of scenery and you know see some some unfamiliar faces. You know, I'm used to the Miami East Coast kind of thing, and it's nice to be over here. Yeah. Now you finally get a summer. This is your first. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is like your first summer as a pro, as an MB in the association that you get an off season. I mean, last year you guys have. The delay, the bubble, the finals run, and then you turn around a month later and start another season. Now you get some time off, not just to decompress because you do need to do that, but also to work on your game a little bit, focus on areas of improvement. Have you highlighted those areas of improvement? Like, Are there things you came into this summer thinking, this is what I want to work on? Or is it just sort of a let's decompress and then let's sort of just get back to basketball broadly? No, I, I try to take a very kind of practical approach to my development. I think that if you're not focusing in on one or two things, then you can kind of start to get pulled in a lot of different directions. And, um, 
you know, I, I just think it's important to kind of zero in on, on what it is. And I do have some things that I'm working on. Uh, definitely my, my body being a huge one. That's, that's a big emphasis. That's honestly the reason that I'm out here. I've connected with a guy out here who I think is, is one of the best. Um, and that's not to any knock on, on Miami. I think Miami is the premier organization when it comes to, to strength and conditioning. Um, shout out to, to Bill Ferran, the original, the pioneer. Shout and then, out Bill. And then also Eric Ferran, who's carrying the, the uh, metaphorical torch. But um, no, for, for the off season, that's a huge emphasis. And then on the court, it's just about continuing to grow and develop. I'm not going to get too much in the nitty gritty just because, I mean, I'll, all right, fine. I'll give a little nugget. <laughs> Obviously, for me, it's it's keep the main thing the main thing. I, I understand what I'm I'm good at. I think that's part of my strength as a player is that I, I know who I am and I don't try to do more than that. Now, with that being said, you still you never want to put yourself in a box. So there's always room for improvement and development. I have a lot of room for improvement offensively, particularly when it comes to inside the three-point line. So a huge emphasis for me this year is establishing a go-to two-pointer basically something yeah. to keep defenses honest and we're working through that right now um, whether it's a mid-range pull-up whether it's a floater um, I, I think I'm pretty solid around the rim finishing you know my, my percentages around the at the rim are, are pretty good now I just need to get there more often and then the other big emphasis is getting to the free throw line that's kind of the way that I look at it is if I can get to the rim or just have a, a effective two that I know I can get to and feel comfortable really getting to the same way I'm comfortable shooting you know the threes that I do then that'll allow me to take a, a big step and then also if I'm able to get to the free throw line um, and it's it's not it's nothing crazy right like if you look at it as simple as if I get one more layup a game that's two points if I get to the line one more time a game that's two more trips to the line and I'm, I'm a pretty good free throw shooter so that's basically another two points and all of a sudden now when you're looking it seems very reasonable and you start to work within the margins that's going from averaging you know 13 or whatever it is points a game to 17 and that's a big difference in winning and losing in an NBA season uh, when you look at the macro stats the, the stats from the 10,000 foot view how how fine those margins are four points in a game uh, can be a big difference and then obviously my body I think will really help me on offense but really where I think it'll help me the most is on defense and that's also a big area where I feel I, I, I can really really improve so that's basically kind of what, what I'm looking for coming into the offseason and that's what I've already started to approach do you just rep out? So like you say you want to work on, and we don't, it sounds like you don't want to get too nitty gritty. Yeah, I don't really want to get into it. But is it just, when you say you're coming in with an emphasis on a two-point shot, is it just repping that out until it's second nature? Is it like toying around to figure out what feels comfortable? Like what, do you, what is it, what is the process there look like? I mean, it's kind of a combination, right? Um, you know, I think a big one is, you can work on and develop all the skills you want in the summer, but if you're not going to be put in those situations when you're wearing your team's jersey, what are you really doing it for? And I think there's times and places to like kind of be creative and step outside the box, but like, you know, there's really only a, a maybe more than a handful, but we'll say one or two guys on every team that get the luxury of like, you can just be fully in your bag all the time. And I know I'm not one of those guys. So for me, it's about finding a two in our offense yeah or like in a general nba offense that you can get to you're comfortable with and you can be effective in it and that's a feel it out process now i well yeah yeah that's really interesting though because that it sounds like 
is the impetus is on you to think about that though, right? Like you're having to think about your offense, uh, Miami's offense, right? Like figuring out where in your experience you have those pockets to find those shots. Like we were talking earlier today about like just knowing who you are in the NBA and so if you're a guy who, you know, has your back to the basket a lot of the time, you don't necessarily need to be practicing, you know, coming off a pick and roll. Or if you're a guy who handles the ball a lot, you don't necessarily need to be working on your post moves unless you're a guy who gets to that a lot in the NBA. I just think it's really interesting. It's like it's first knowing yourself and knowing yeah. what you need to work on. But then, like you said, it's knowing your team's dynamics and understanding where you're going to get those shots. But it feels like the responsibility is on you as a player to know that. I mean, I think it's both. I, I think that particularly in an off-season where you're no longer viewed within the confines of a team for this this short stretch, right? And I'm, and I'm always trying, I should say, to think bigger picture of, okay, how does this translate to my role in an, on an NBA team and or, or with the Miami Heat? And... I feel like I'm pretty capable of doing that. Now, whether or not I'm capable of doing that, that gets pressed upon me or or anyone once you step into training camp. Because it it you know, there's one thing that's pretty clear about the NBA is that roles are pretty well defined, right? Like you you know who's on the floor to do what, you know whose job it is to do this, this, or this, and that's pretty drawn out. Now, in the offseason, guys have the the luxury of being able to, like, step outside that role that maybe they've been placed in. Now, whether that's a good or bad thing, I think, is up for interpretation. I try to look at myself within my role always because I also know that I'm not going to be a 30 ball screens a game guy. Right. Well. So, well, no. So, so with that being said, I know where I fit and, and that's, that's whatever team I'm on. I kind of know where I fit and then it becomes, okay, now that I've carved out this, this little space for me, how do I then make it a little bit bigger? How do I then grow in little areas here, here, and here where I just become a little bit tougher to guard or a little bit more effective? Um, so you, you start to approach it in that way. I, that's why I think it's a combination of both in that it's not just on me. I think the, the responsibility falls upon me to not be delusional, basically. Right. Because I, I shouldn't be working on, you know, James Harden step backs all summer and then yeah. show up to camp like, oh, look what I got in my bag yeah, now. Yeah, right. And it's like, all right, well, sweet, dude. You can go do that in Serbia. That would be sweet. But you can't do it here. <laughs> that makes sense. All right, so if you're working on the court, if you're working on – you know, those things, getting to a two, getting to the free throw line, whatever. What is your weight room emphasis? Can you give me like an area of the body? I mean. Arms, shoulders. No, I mean, generally lower body, just movement, moving better. That's that's huge. Um, you know, I, I think I have, like anybody does, nobody's perfect. Uh, it's as hard as that maybe for you to hear. Uh, nobody's perfect. And you know, I have some movement deficiencies limitations, whatever you want to call them. So for me, it becomes how do I then mitigate those limitations and kind of, you know, I think I got to the point towards the end of the year where I was 
definitely respectable on defense. Um, I also know I'm always going to be called out, and, and every time I give up a bucket, it's going to be, oh, that guy can't guard a chair. But with that being said, I, I've made a lot of improvements since I've been in the NBA, but then it's about, okay, how do we continue to push this forward and build? So it's, it's you know, you're just never never a finished product. Uh, you know, progress over perfection is is <laughs> – <laughs> is kind of the motto that I like to run with. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's been a good summer so far and I'm, I'm excited for a whole lot more work. So two things, one, that sounded like a really long way to say, you just want to get quicker laterally. Uh, two, I mean, it's not as simple as that. I think that that's not giving our, our audience enough credit. I think that's maybe speaking down to them a little bit. No, 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 no. I think it was you trying to speak up. No, I, I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's more than just being quick, quicker ladder. Like it's not just as simple as like working on foot drills, which you'll hear, you know, Scalabrini talk about quite yeah. a bit. Yeah. I, it's, it's partly that, but it's also then understanding, okay, where am I limited if, you know, and I'll just speak not necessarily to myself because I don't need my whole anatomy thrown out there. If, if, you know, player X is tight in a certain area in his body in a hip or a, a knee and as a result can't move, you know, perfectly a certain way and has an asymmetry in how they move, then it's like, all right, well, let's address that. Let's be more fluid in, in motion through those areas so then we can just be an overall better athlete. Makes sense. All right, the second thing, uh, can we talk about how hard it is to break the reputation of being a bad defender once you have that reputation? It's not hard. It's impossible. It's just insane. It is impossible. Because there are multiple reasons. One, you're always going to get targeted, yeah. which means people are just going at you more often than other guys. I shouldn't say it's impossible. I shouldn't say it's it impossible. It seems impossible. Yeah. It seems like if a, let's just say a guy, if a guy has a bad reputation for being a bad defender and they are getting attacked constantly and you get a couple stops, people are a little quiet about those stops. But then as soon as you get scored on, it's like, oh. That guy can't get a stop. Everyone gets scored on. It's the NBA. I believe, not to get too scientific, but I believe it's called confirmation bias. Correct. It is. Uh, you can look that up if you're if you're back at home, uh, maybe with a computer accessible to you. Uh, no, but I mean, yeah, it's, it's very much you see what you want to see in terms of if you're seeing a guy getting stops, you maybe wouldn't acknowledge it until all of a sudden they rattle off three, four buckets in a row. And then it's like, see, I told you that guy can't guard. <laughs> uh, but the reality is, for me personally, I have a ways to go as a defender. I, I don't think that I'm like all of a sudden Scottie Pippen out here. Um, but with that being said, it's also understanding this is the National Basketball Association and people are supremely talented offensively. I mean, you see it in the playoffs. You watch guys, P.J. Tucker, for example, guarding Kevin Durant. That's pretty much about as much as you can do. Yeah, like right. you're not – like Kevin Durant, those last two, game six and game seven, he was going to have 40 points. So for P.J. Tucker, it's like you can't get caught up in I need to make sure this guy doesn't score 40. It's how do I make this 40 – legitimately as difficult as possible and that's what you saw in game seven by the time it got to overtime which i mean the end the the shot he hit at the end of regulation was ridiculous insane um but once you get to overtime it's like okay i've worn on him enough to the point where these last buckets are really really hard to come by um and that's that's so much of what 
you know, playing defense in the NBA is about is just making it really tough on offensive players. It's not, you know, you have some guys and it's not even going to happen all the time that can like really put guys in a box and like, you know, cut them off, cut them off, contest, steal, swipe, whatever it is. But the vast majority, it's like, all right, let's keep him off his spot and let's make it tough. Speaking of PJ Tucker, do you want to talk uh, Milwaukee, Miami series? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, we can we can talk relatively briefly. I mean, I it was a brief. Series. I can't. Yeah, it, it was a brief series, um, unfortunately. And I give Milwaukee a ton of credit. I think they're really good. I think that obviously people are going to point to the injuries with Brooklyn and and why they advance, but I think that they're capable of of winning it all. I, I, I think they're probably my pick to win it all actually. Um, and I actually had that take when we stopped playing them when, when game four ended. And, you know, there's, there's one thing that I, I really learned this postseason. It's the reminder of just how fragile playoff series are in general. And last year in the bubble, I was on the beneficiary of that. And I got to feel the positives of how fragile they are. And this year, I very much felt the negatives. Now, I'm not saying that we were like right there neck and neck with them because they swept us. Um, But it's just an interesting kind of psychological side to this in that, you know, we very well could have won game one. And if we get that game in Milwaukee, even if they do blow the doors off us game two, we're coming back game three and it's just a totally different feel in that game. And who knows what happens and, and, and maybe they end up going out, you know, maybe we take game one and they still end up winning in five, whatever. I mean, who, who knows, but it, it was just a reminder of like, wow, these, these series can come down to possessions and they do, they do come down to possessions. I mean, I, I even think of, there's just so many examples. You could look at every single series that's been played and look at it and say like, all right, this just goes to show you that the last two minutes or whatever it ends up being, like crunch time, how pivotal that is, not just for that game, but how it just shifts the momentum of, of, of an entire series. When you're playing a team over and over and over again, there's a psychological component to, especially with the Bucks this year for us, because we played them last year. And if we get that game one, like I felt like after they won that game one, there was a huge sense of like relief from oh, them. Oh, absolutely. Like, all right, this, this year is different. Like it like validated them in that sense. Um, well, like I said, a ton of credit to them. They made it really hard for us. Obviously, you know, offensively, uh, we struggled and defensively, you know, we, we struggled as well. So, um, like I said, I, I think they're, they're my favorites, um, to, to ultimately end up winning it. That defensive lineup that they can roll out of Drew, Chris, Giannis, Brooke, PJ. Yeah. Is just ridiculous. Yeah. It just depends. Right. Because. Brooke is like so unique. Um, I think a lot of people were like kind of pulling their hair out watching him in the the uh, Brooklyn series because Brooklyn had the personnel to maybe play him off the floor, um, you know, with with bigs that can shoot and, and Blake. But you know, that's why I think coming down game six and seven, he was on the floor less than he was earlier in the series. Um, but for 
for us, like he was so impactful because he's just able to be in the paint um, and disrupt the, you know, what do basically be what, be what he is and do what he does best um, is ultimately what it is. And that's be seven one at the rim and basically take away all paint points. I walked by him once at Staples Center a couple years ago, and he was the largest human being I've ever seen in my life. Like, I've seen guys taller than him, but he just has so much mass. It was ridiculous. So to imagine him standing in the middle of the lane and trying to score around him, just I I can't even fathom it. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I remember watching game one of their series with uh, Brooklyn uh, and the first possession – it was either Kyrie or, or Katie come off a ball screen and Brooke was up in the ball screen. And it was like the first time because the entire series against us, he was back in the paint. And I think obviously it's that for them playing us, they wanted to see if we could make that shot coming off. And, and when you're playing guys like Kyrie and Kevin, it's like, all right, we're not just going to let these guys come off and be comfortable right from the jump here. Um, so that that alone just goes to show you like – NBA like playoffs are just so finicky and, and fine. And the game planning is like in the adjustments, they're so pivotal in, in how a series ends up, uh, you know, ultimately coming out. And yeah, I mean, Milwaukee got off to a tough start, but I, I think down the stretch, I think they're this year, it's, it's a totally different Milwaukee team. And I think PJ and Drew are obviously a huge, huge part of that. They provided defensive toughness, um, that I don't think they had in years past. You see Atlanta giving them any kind of run, or do you think they get through that series pretty easily? We're recording this before Game One. Too. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I've been impressed by what Atlanta's done. Um, I don't see them coming out on on top in the series. Maybe get a game or two, um, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Listen, I'm I'm certainly not the the be all end all of, of basketball takes. Maybe you are. Um, yeah, I mean, who knows? But. Atlanta does some things well that that I think could ultimately give Milwaukee some problems uh, just with their ability to shoot threes from a variety of different positions. I think is when we look at Milwaukee, a weakness of theirs all year at least has been giving up threes. So, you know, if Atlanta can get hot and once again, especially it's like if you win game one, it's like the same thing with that Atlanta Philly series. Like you get game one and it just starts to look totally different. It changes the whole landscape of the entire series. So I think it's possible for sure. I got Milwaukee as well. I mean, yeah, not exactly a hot take. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. That, that's the recap I think people were kind of looking for. So, so what else do we got here? Um, I mean, I guess we could just talk. We talk, So you got Milwaukee coming out of the East. Yeah. Right now, it's as we, as we record this, it's 2-0 Phoenix in the West. Do you see any world where uh, the Clippers make this interesting? I think they'll make it interesting. Um, a ton of credit to Paul George. I mean, talk about just rising to the occasion despite the slander, particularly in that, that Utah series. Um I mean, yeah, he's a, uh, a long ways away from the bubble jokes and all that stuff that was going on, which I thought was just 
I don't want to say ridiculous, but because it's like, you know, I guess you can make the argument that it's it's warranted if you're a star like him and to play the way that he did. But with that being said, it's like they're human beings. You know, it's like who who knows what what could have been going on. But anyways, I I love a comeback. I I like to see that he's playing as well as as he is right now, and I think it'll be a series for sure. I still probably have Phoenix coming out of the West, but I think it'll be a series. Yeah, Chris Paul comes back for Game 3, it sounds like. Uh, I imagine Phoenix is probably going to win that series. Quick note on Paul George. He's getting slandered for missing those two free throws in Game 2 down the stretch. But people have to realize that's just the basketball gods intervening because of the out-of-bounds play that it was called off Booker, that Pat Bev slapped it out. That it, was just, it all came out even there. That should have been Suns ball anyway. And then Paul George misses the two free throws afterwards. I so mean, we just call it even. That's an interesting point of contention because it really depends on how you want to look at it. I mean, Van Gundy on the broadcast had the take of like that defeats the purpose of the rule in that every gym in America or any time that's not under two minutes, that ball is correctly called in favor of Phoenix. Yes. Right. But if you, yeah, if you want to take the time to slow mo it down to every single frame and see that it's just barely touching Devin Booker last before it goes out of bounds, it's like, okay, well, I'm not, I don't fault the referees for making that call either, though, because he right. was the last person to touch it. No, I agree. That's why the basketball gods have to step in. They then come in and correct, and correct it. Paul George just had to be the culprit, yeah. which is too bad. He's been great. These yeah. playoffs, yeah. people are going to point at the two missed free throws, but that was not him. That was the basketball gods. Yeah, outside of his control. Correct. It's also to... another It's another reminder of like, you know, he made so many plays down the stretch. Paul George did. The, the jumper. Yeah, he had two huge buckets layup. right before. Yeah, I mean, and then, of course, the only thing anyone's going to remember is the missed free throws. It's like the... I don't know if it's – I don't know what to make of that. I don't know if it's it's good or bad or – it just kind of is what it is, right? Like, it's that's just how it goes. People are always going to remember that one moment where you missed two free throws. Sorry, people. The basketball gods had something to say. It, look, I wrote this down. It's bigger than all of us. You've got the Booker broken nose, which is reminiscent, reminiscent of the, the Nash broken nose. Yeah. You've got CP3 out, but you've got another CP that steps in. Mm. Right, and then you've got the weird out of bounds off Booker. Paul George misses two free throws. That's all just the basketball gods at work. Phoenix was supposed to win that game. You think so? Yeah. And is Phoenix supposed to win the series? Too early to tell. Okay, that you know, seems like a cop out. The but, Clippers okay. have been down two zero before. True. So Twice. this isn't unfamiliar territory. This is third time this playoffs. They're already the first team in playoff history to come back from 0-2 twice. Why not make Correct. it three times? But if you look at the like locker room FaceTimes with Chris Paul and how fired up the team yeah. is, I imagine him coming back in game three as a little added motivation for Phoenix. Not even added motivation. They don't need added motivation. But just, you know, it, there's something yeah, no, about for like, sure. yeah. that juju in the locker Quick room. Quick shout out to, to Jay Crowder for that pass at the end. That Did was you incredible. see the, the side yeah. camera angle? Yeah, that was incredible. It grazes the... I've had times where I've been asked to try to throw an alley-oop off the side of the backboard and just some people that I've played with that can dunk. Okay. Anyway, it's hard. It's hard just to hit it off the side of the backboard. Uh, Well, he didn't hit the side of the backboard. That was the right. No, but I'm saying I think it's probably easier to, to, to right above you hit the side of the backboard than it is to throw that pass. If I had to guess. (laughs) Yeah, I'd probably imagine. I mean, he put it, legitimately right on the money um which i don't think was intentional by the way i think he just threw that i think it was probably some luck in there so you're taking the credit away from it was an amazing pass but it almost seemed like he didn't realize how close he was throwing it to the backboard 
Sorry, Jay. Anyways, we digress. What do we got? <laughs> I guess we go to our Reddit question of the week. All right, let's, let's do it. Uh, this comes from Mia Wallace's shirt. Mm. Mia Wallace, can you tell me what movie Mia Wallace is from? I should know this. What is it? Can I actually, mean? I should probably confirm that I'm right. I think it's Pulp Fiction. Oh, yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Well, right. Anyway, uh, the question is, what do players and refs talk about during games? Which I think is really interesting. Now, there were times earlier this year uh, when fans weren't allowed in games where you would hope that you would pick up some of that on the mic, but, you know, they're pumping noise into the arenas and playing yeah. music. And so us fans aren't really sure what that dialogue looks like. I mean, it's it's important to start this off with we all have relationships with refs as well. It's the same refs that are refing the games. You know, we see them every whatever, three, four games or however the rotations work. So eventually you start to develop a rapport. You have some inside jokes. You have some memories between the two of you. You guys are first name basis. Yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah, I mean, that's that's like one of the things early on that when you're a young player – uh, you're always out there in the center circle before games and you do that so you can meet all the refs and introduce yourself and get to know them. And we actually have, like we have the names of the refs on the board as we're heading out because it's just more, you know, you want to treat them like a, a human being the same way as a player. You want to be treated as a human being. So saying their first names and, you know, maybe not always raising your voice to them uh, despite maybe your displeasure is uh, can go a long way, you know. A little bit can can go a long way, sure. just in in kind of treating them with respect. So for me, I I always try to like do kind of. I have like the jokes that I kind of mess around with. Like, can you give us one? Not really. There's nothing like really that like really sticks out. I mean, like, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not gonna name drop, but <laughs> <laughs> it's it's basically like you just start to develop that rapport. So throughout the the course of a game, I'll sometimes boil over. I only have one technical to my name, and that's because of my college teammate, Mo mm, Wagner. That's right. Uh, who incited a double technical, which he tends to do really well. Yeah. Um, but anyways, yeah, <laughs> I, when I do boil over, for whatever reason, I am I feel that I, I'm given a little bit of a runway and a little bit of leeway. I don't know why, but I am. It's the face. Um, and it's I think, be the And face. I think part of it is that I, I do my work early and that I do try to establish relationships with these guys. And then if I do boil over, I always try to address it after the fact. Like, hey, sorry, man. Like, I, I just kind of got caught up in the moment. Now, if there's a call that I disagree with in the first half, I always tell them, I'm going to need you to look at that at halftime because they go back at halftime and watch film of questionable calls. And then I'm always checking in at the end of halftime of who was right. And sometimes, I mean, it's like 50-50. Sometimes I I end up being right. Sometimes they come back to me like, no, like we made the right call or non-call or whatever. Um, so it's, you know, it's a give and take. It's like any good relationship. You know, it requires work, effort, uh, persistence. And, you know, you just try to make it work. I love it. Uh, first of all, I love that you uh, you have the wherewithal to admit that you aren't always right with the refs. That's good. Yeah. That's important. Yeah, I think, that, I think that builds credibility, right? If you're just, like, running around and just saying all the time, I'm right, I'm right, you got that wrong, then it's like, how is anyone supposed to actually take your opinion seriously? Fair. Um, are you guys having conversations throughout a game, like, not even about basketball? Like, no. are they? There's none of that. Not really. I mean, like, I'm not asking you how your family's doing. Yeah, I mean, not occasionally, like before the game. Definitely not during the game. Like before the game, like, hey, you know, Scott, what's going on, man? Or 
whatever and i'll be like good good like how's everybody doing i'll be like good and you know that's that's kind of it it's all very surface level in that regard but uh but yeah not we're not like you know talking shop at halftime or or kind of like at, at the free throw line or anything like that that's too bad do you are there refs and i don't need you to name names although i wouldn't hate you naming names are there refs that you find you get a little more leeway with because of your relationship with them, I know no, that they're. No. I know that refs are all impartial. That's not what I'm getting. No, at. No, I think no. I, I don't think that that exists. I think if anything, there's refs that I feel like have it out for me. Yeah, I yeah. think that for sure exists. But that's like that's probably more in my mind than anything else. Like, no ref is. Well, maybe I shouldn't say this, but it doesn't seem. I can't imagine that a ref would go out and like purposely try to get a player in foul trouble in or anything world, like that. Right. I mean, maybe if this was like, Oh, four Donaghy, like something like that, maybe, I, I mean, yeah, I, I guess not. Maybe I guess that did happen, but in your, your modern association, these guys are getting graded out, evaluated on every single call time. They blow the whistle, their, their, uh, patterns as they move throughout the court. Like all this stuff is being evaluated after the game. So I can't imagine, like, no one's really going in there with their own agendas other than officiating a high-level basketball game and making sure the outcome is what it's supposed to be. That's that's what I think, like, Monty McCutcheon, who's, I think he's, like, the head of the refereeing association, um, he comes and speaks to all the teams before the season about, you know, we're, we're emphasizing this this year, we're making these changes to the rule book, whatever, and his whole take is we're, like, we're fixtures in, in your performance like we're here to ensure that the team that should win wins yeah that's all that we're here to do where it's not not to make it about us now does that happen sometimes who am i to say that it does but it might feels like a fitting time to talk about how the last i think minute of the game two phoenix in la last night what it took like 20 minutes yeah to play the last 30 seconds of the game that's a tricky topic right because it's like at that point in the game, you want to ensure that you're getting the calls sure. right. But it is insufferable to sit through 30 minutes of basketball. Sorry, 30 seconds of basketball that takes 30 minutes. Yeah. And it was funny. I was actually, when I was back home, I was watching a game with my sister. And I was just acknowledging how many reviews there are and how many commercials there are. And she, who you know, watches all my games, is like, oh yeah, it's like, like we're used to this. Like this is what it is. And like, I don't know. It, it was just kind of like, whoa, wow. This this is really maybe an issue that should be addressed. I don't I don't know. I I still stand on the side of like you have to get these calls right. So, listen, this is for people smarter than me to come up with. But like maybe there's some way to smart. to ensure that these calls are still being made the right way in a more timely fashion. Maybe it's coming from you know, upstairs or something. Um, I, I don't know how it happens, but like the, yeah, every, every possession running to the, the table to see who the ball went off of is just like, it's exhausting. When you say the decision should be taken care of upstairs, you're referring to God, right? <laughs> the basketball cuts. No, yeah. uh, this is a secular podcast. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> so not referring to any God. That's on me. Uh, I'm referring to Steve Javi in Secaucus, New Jersey. Who could be God <laughs> yeah. for all we know. Yeah, he's the the god of referees. He has the best job in America. The greatest, yeah, he's got right. the best gig going. Have, can you doesn't have to get yelled at by fans? Like he just kind of you know sits in his booth, watches NBA games that we're all watching anyways. Well, especially he does in the get playoffs. yelled at by fans. Just for the record, it's just on 
like I yelled at him the other yeah, night. Yeah, through the television. Right. Well, here's the thing. He's never disagreed with a ref ever in his career. I It's a it's a well, I would say fraternity, but there's also women in it, so I don't know I don't know what that is. I then. think sororities are technically fraternities. Can we get a fact check on that? This feels there's no one else here. This feels uh, yeah, we need like an intern or something. <laughs> hey, can we get a fact check? <laughs> um yeah, anyways, he's got a great gig, Javi. Um, I just, why are we cutting to Javi if he's just going to, yeah, you know, I think that it's probably Because this. it's a further explanation. I'm no. not mad at him. He's I, always towing the line, just waiting to hear the ref's decision, and then he's like, I agree. That's great actually call. not true. Sometimes, sometimes they'll, he'll tune in before a decision's made, and he'll say, yeah, I think we're going to see a flagrant one coming because of this excessive contact here. And then it won't be a flagrant one, and he'll be like, you know, Maybe there was, you know, blah, 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 and he'll, he'll back. Well, yeah, he's going to back up his guys. But for the vast majority of the calls. Maybe I'm going to hell. He's, he, he's, fall, he's falling in line with the calls being made on the floor because the people that he's putting on the floor, because I, I'm thinking that he has some say in that, him and Monty McCutcheon, the people that he's putting on the floor are good at what they do, especially in the playoffs. Playoff refs are really good refs. They're not just letting anyone ref the playoffs. As crazy, as hard as that might be to hear for some of you, because, <laughs> but one of my favorite things to do, and this is like totally, like remove me from the fact that I, I play basketball in the NBA. One of my favorite things to do is any level of sports is hearing both fan bases complain about the refs. Oh, yeah. It's what like, happens? how does that, how do, how do, how does team A feel like they get screwed over by the refs, but also team B? Confirmation bias. <laughs> Maybe that's the theme of the pod now. Yeah, confirmation bias. Anyways, this this went it got a little convoluted, but you know, shout out to Steve Javi. Yeah, I shout out to I, get, that's I think my, I got disrespected. That's my big takeaway. This has gone a lot of different directions, but I gotta say I've enjoyed it. You know, we're back in we're back in person. We're having some fun, and I, I think you're gonna enjoy this conversation with Scal. He is he's truly one of one, uh, big time personality, and when you listen to him, you see why he was able to navigate his career in the NBA the way that he did, which, mind you, I can't even imagine. I mean, I get a ton of, not, not to go down this path, but I can't even imagine the criticism that he, that he faced through every turn of his career and continued to just keep on pushing. And, I mean, I've seen, I, you'll hear about, you know, we talk about at a time where we worked out, he can really, really play at a yeah. high, high level. Um, but yeah, we, we enjoyed this one. Yeah. I mean, he's, he played in the NBA for 11 years, right? It's like, that's not a mistake, right? The average career is like four, four years or yeah. three and a half or he something small tripled that. Yeah. So for him to play 11 years, win a uh, I championship. Think, I think it's a huge testament to who he is obviously as a player, but also as a person, because the way he navigated is just impressive. Yeah. It's an awesome conversation. He also finds a way to flip it and st sort of start interviewing you, which yeah. I thought was pretty enjoyable. Yeah, I mean he's. I didn't kind of what that. he does, but I. But yeah, that's that's my guy. And so this podcast is about you, buddy. Whether you like. Anyways, it. that's uh, episode twenty-one, and uh, we're we're happy to be back here in person. But we're looking forward to uh, some more content here coming up soon. Here's Scott. We welcome in a junior college champion. Went on to transfer to USC where he was first team all Pac-10, the 34th overall pick in the 2001 NBA draft. 
He went on to have an illustrious 11-year NBA career, including winning a championship with the Boston Celtics in 2008. You can see the banner behind him. Uh, known and loved by many, and now the play-by-play and color commentator. He does both, people, for the Boston Celtics. Welcome into the long shot. Uh, friend of mine, Brian Scalabrini. Scal, how are we doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm glad that you reached out. I was going to play hard to get in the shit and make you uh, like teach my son how to hoop, but nah, I'll just do the podcast. Now. I don't need anything from you. What do you mean you were going to play hard to get? You left me on red say, on Friday. You know, yeah, like a little trade and barter. Like I'm, my son loves you, and he wants to understand. Like every time he catches the ball high and shoots it high, he always yells, "Duncan Robinson, Duncan Robinson." So I was like, "How the hell can you shoot the ball from twenty five feet catching it above your eyes?" Like it doesn't make any sense. So I was gonna say, like, you teach my son how to do that. He's only eight, by the way. Then I'll do your podcast. But nah, man, you're my guy. I'll do your podcast. You uh, you should have bartered that because I'm actually back in the the New England area. Would have loved to have made a trip down. Uh, around your way also shameless plug for the podcast we have catch high keep high shirts yeah so i'm i'm definitely going to be sending you a couple of those uh, now that you yeah we do catch high keep high is the slogan of the podcast I love that. um so i'm, I'm going to be sending a couple of your ways uh, you can absolutely go, you know catch high keep high Catch high, stay high. You can go a lot of you go a lot of directions with that <laughs> we try to keep it pg maybe pg 13 oh, sorry no, no not the I, podcast just the merch yeah, yeah. Oh, gotcha. podcast now now since we're talking about it i just want to put it out there now you're allowed to curse uh right. so so please please do not hold back um so yeah you and i actually are are in a similar situation we're on vacation a little earlier than maybe we anticipated not that i i want to talk you know too in depth of, of celtics basketball but what did you kind of see there down the stretch, uh, kind of obviously injuries are, are a big part of it and, and being healthy and playing well at the right time. Um, but did you kind of expect this also running into Brooklyn is, is kind of unfortunate yeah. luck, but, but what do you got? Well, I think, I think at this point, the Celtics have, you got to like, let's like take it back a couple of years. They had a treasure trove of assets moving forward. They had cap space. They had young players. They had it all, you know, going into it. And like nothing really came to fruition, you know, like the, you know, you had Gordon Hayward, he left, you get the trade exception and it turned into Evan Fournier, Evan Fournier gets COVID, like everything that was supposed to work out didn't work out for them. And this year in particular, and I think, I, and I, I'm, I bring it up, which is weird that I'm bringing it up with you because you guys obviously didn't play well in uh, against Milwaukee this year and everything like that. But I always use you guys as a standard. I've always said that the NBA is changing. The best passing teams are the teams that are going to advance. And you're just going to look around and the teams that move the ball or have those high IQ decision makers or high impact scores decision makers on the team. Those are the teams that are going to be really good. I just I like Jalen Brown and I like Jason Tatum. I think those guys are really good. I think they have to level up in their playmaking ability. And when they when they start making people around them better, that's when the Celtics will reach their potential. And and a lot of people will say it's chemistry, it's this, it's that. I'm like, I shot profile. It's how easy of looks are you getting? Do you move the ball? Do you make the right play? And I don't, we're just not at that point where we're we have a lot of guys that made the right play. So I I think they deserve where they ended up. It's it's interesting because Obviously, there's a lot of complexities that go into running offense at the NBA level, but the more I've been around it, the more I've kind of noticed that the best offenses function by just getting off the ball a lot of the times. 
And it's that when you get and, – and obviously you need ball stoppers that, that can make a play in the playoffs, but to build that synergy that you're talking about, so often it's just like are you willing when you when you engage to, to move it to the open man? Um, and it's hard. I mean, there's there's so much that goes into that between like egos and, and statistics and all these types of things. Um, and, and it makes it tough. Do you are you a believer in like the the statistic of just counting passes? Because I know I know some teams do that. I'm, I'm curious if, if you think that's like a, a good metric for good offense. Yeah. So it's it depends on the player. Right. And I don't get me wrong. I, I was going to ask you this when I was I was just working out. And I was thinking one question I want to ask you, right? Do you ever watch game film with anybody who's like a, one of your cheerleaders, whether it be like your mom, your girlfriend, your any, do you have any time you ever watch your games with someone that is like in your corner? Uh, not really, actually. Not really. I, was, I mean, it, I was it, wondering. It would be if I were to watch game film with my mom, for example. I mean, my mom is so it's like offensively biased and partial towards me. It's like you wouldn't even be able to like I don't even think it would hold any value. But but continue. So the reason why I have that question is because like let's say I'm watching a Miami Heat fast break, right? And I see you're on the break, and I see two guys frantically running to you before you have the ball and Jimmy Butler gets a dunk, right? Like, does mama say, you know, you know, you know, baby, you made that play happen. <laughs> or if Bam out of Bayou gives you a fake handoff and turns the corner and dunks it. Ah, uh, oh, you know, Duncan, you made that play happen. Does your mom say that kind of stuff? Because on the broadcast, I'm like, in, by the way, during your games, I'll be like, you better find Duncan Robinson. As soon as we turn the ball over, better find Duncan Robinson. <laughs> I got guys running at you. I just, but the point, like, why I'm bringing that up in this question is because it's all about impactful passes. For instance, when you come off a dribble handoff, you're kind of drawing two. And from there, you play. When Jimmy Butler gets downhill, he's drawing two. From there, you play. I can get a bunch of morons to pass the ball at the top of the key and get right. 400 passes, and they don't do anything. But it's all about, does each pass compromise the defense? Does the, each pass make the defense shift? And, and there's a lot of different ways you can do that. You could do that with a pick and roll. You can do that with a rip screen. You can do that with a fake dribble handoff. Anything that you do, if it draws two, then all of a sudden I think that's a good pass. If it doesn't draw two, I don't actually count that as a just a good pass. Even though I recognize that it does soften up the defense, I think it's important to compromise the defense because if I'm playing and I get put in rotation, I'm dead. If I'm playing and I know it and you're just doing things that aren't causing me to be in rotation, I will continue to be able to defend at the NBA level. But as soon as I have to get to two and fly back to mine and close out and then you drive the ball, like I might as well just check myself out of the game. That reminds me of it's another kind of form of metric, but when people talk about the ball changing sides of the floor, which and it's yeah. like it's like th those types of statistics require context. If you're just passing the ball from one side of the floor to the other, it's like you need, and and that's where you know you talk about a guy like like JT or, or JB, where it's like they can create and engage to, and and if they're able to get the ball to the other side of the floor, that's when you're really working um, with an advantage. Just hearing you talk about this, I'm curious how your playing career. Obviously, it. it prepared you and your coaching career prepared you for uh the fact that you do you know uh, you do play-by-play -play and color which you might be one of the few who actually do both first of all is that true sure. 
So some some of the radio people do both, and I've only done both like a handful of times, like you know, in like in a pinch. I don't enjoy doing both. I will do it. It's almost like it's almost like the way the Brooklyn Net role players are stepping up and they wake up and they're a little bit different today because they know they're going to get their chance, right? Right. That's kind of how I feel when I do play-by-play. Like we did the Houston Rockets who were like dreadful, right? But I'm doing play-by-play that day and I'm like, I got like cold palms, I'm ready to go, you know? So I don't, I couldn't, if I had to do that 82 times, Duncan, it would, it would wear me out. Like I just, I just, I can do analysts in my sleep for me to do play by play, I'm working like four hours going into right. it to find out, you know, where uh, you know, Kevin Porter went to high school and his cousin's brother or something like that. So that's just a little bit too much. I don't like doing all that, but I don't mind dabbling in it once in a while. How has your playing career or just in general, your, your basketball acumen, because just hearing you talk, it, it kind of, you know, just exudes off the screen, if you will. How has that helped you? make that transition and be able to have the versatility to do both. Duncan, um, I love, love the game of basketball. I'm not really into a lot of different things. I'm not, I don't, I don't actually watch other sports until like maybe like the AFC NFC championship. I love the beauty of the game. I've loved it from the very first time I started playing seriously. All my friends are basketball people. I coach AAU, 14-year-old girl. I, I just, I never get tired of this game, ever. I never get tired of talking about it. I never get tired of doing it. It's just, it's one of those things. So so you take that and, you, and people say, wow, that's really interesting that you're so, you're really, you really love this. And now go on TV and talk about it. It's really not like work for me. They pay me to be there, but it's not work because there's so many cool things about the game. And I'm not like one of these old school stay off my lawn. When we played, we played like this. I actually love some of the nuances of the game now and the, and the movement. And I love, and, but I I also hate some of it. Like I hate the lack of physicality. I think physicality is a good thing. I I just, I'm not a big fan of, you know, like the lack of fouls. And I mean, I mean, I'm not a big fan of defenses being in great position and hitting guys and offenses snapping their head back and getting calls. So, so yeah, but I, but I do, I do love it, and it's that that and first and foremost has helped me transition. Can we uh, speaking of you falling in love with the game? Can we go back to that period of your life? At what age would you say you fell in love with the game? So it happened twice, right? Like first when I was fourteen, and I'd go to the park, and I was like, I don't know how you like you you played Middlesex Magic, right, Duncan? You played right. AAU your whole life, or did you play that? Did that start a little bit later? basically one year of legitimate AU going into my last year of, of high school. Interesting. So with, with Mike Crotty, by the way, I think, you, I think, you know, Mike, or you've come yeah, across. No, I do. I, and I, and I, I work with another AAU program here and I think they do a great job. Like their they spacing do. is incredible. I think, I think Mike does a good job. Um, but anyways, uh, I, I, I fell in love with this game going to the park. You know, you can play anytime you want. I, I was really lucky that I had a bunch of friends that loved to play. So I got my 10,000 hours in by being at the park and playing over and over again. And then I went, I, I went to, I was one year of AAU as well, but it was a little bit strange because like when I, when we went to the jump circle, I looked, I was like, Kobe Bryant was over there. Jermaine O'Neal was over there. I was like, what am I doing out here? <laughs> oh, I'm out here. What's the deal? So, but then when I, when I got back home and I experienced that, I knew it was like, you know, like, you know, I was stunned, you know, like I was thought I was good. And I tell my friends I'm good. And I tell everybody I'm good. Then I went down there and I realized I wasn't. 
So I'm like, either I'm all in or I'm all out. And that was a great experience. Getting my ass kicked made me all in on basketball. And that was, that goes from playing basketball to working at basketball to 400 meter repeaters on the track to working on your foot speed to, you know, working on certain types of moves that you feel like you can, you know, you know, get off in a game that before that I just played and played and played after that I worked and worked and worked. And that's, Sort of like there's like a two-part love relationship with the game. Yeah, you you obviously have the the small college come up as well. Um, that transition from junior college to playing in the Pac-10 at the time. Um, mm-hmm. What was that like making that jump? Obviously, there's there's an increase in ability, skill, physicality, all of that stuff. But I'm curious of, of the mental side of that. Uh, making that jump. You talk about it, a moment where you go and get humbled. I've experienced many times in my career that like the moment you start to feel like you have things figured out, the basketball gods find a way to just kind of like self-correct, right? And be like, yeah, not not exactly what you, you thought it was. Were there moments like that in that transition? No. So from junior college, so everyone told me, so here's like a little background. And I know you have a really interesting story as well. Your story is actually more interesting than this, but I was cut off the, you know, there's like town, right? We played in junior high. So I was cut off the eighth grade team. So that was 15 players in eighth grade that were better than me, but it was the best thing that ever happened. Cause like the junior eighth grade, all we did is go in the back gym and we had two hours a day. And all I did was hoop for two hours and the players sucked that I was playing against. And every time I walked in and looked at the varsity practice, Everyone was standing around listening to the coach tell them how to play a 2-3 zone or some other bullshit, right? So I was like, man, this is great. Like, I'd rather play than stand around as a 15th man and listen to this, right? So so then my ninth grade year, I didn't play a lot my freshman year. Sophomore, I was on the JV team. And then finally, my junior year, I averaged like 10 points a game in high school, right? So so I, I it totally makes sense when people said – Hey, you know what? You're never going to play a minute at USC. You're you're you'll you'll be back here. You'll transfer back and you'll go to some, you know, two bit, you know, Division three college or something like that. And I, I just kind of stuck it to you real quick. Real Sorry, yeah, but uh, but you know, and and when people say that, it worked. Like, and I'm one of these guys. Like, a lot of people don't want to hear the negativity. Like, I wasn't like that. I heard it, and then I just reacted upon it. I didn't like sulk around and say, "Oh man, people don't think I can do it." I was like. I'm going to get on the track. I got to work. And I would work. And I worked and worked and worked morning, afternoon, between classes, weights, go to pickup games. At the time, the Seattle Supersonics, it was really an inclusive environment. I would go and work out with some of the guys that they were trying out. So I was driving everywhere to play as much basketball as I can because people told me I wasn't going to be very good. So when I got to USC, like, guess what, man? All that work, I was just better than everybody else. And first of all, like we go up for the mile. And I know this is, you had to be, cause I remember when I worked you out, your conditioning went to like times five. It had yeah. to be, I'm not saying you were in bad shape, but you're in phenomenal shape right now. And when I was in college, I ran a 445 mile at six, nine, two thirty. So I'm lapping everybody on my team. So if you're a head coach, you see this white boy show up and he's all of a sudden lapping your guys in a mile. What the hell are you going to do? Every conditioning drill, we would run bigs and smalls. I'd smoke the bigs, so I'd run with the small. Then I'd beat the smalls. So just the fact that I won all the conditioning drills, the coach is like, I'm not. I'm going to start you. So then you start and you play and you play well because you start. 
And it all had to do with just me being in incredible shape because I worked my ass off up until that moment. I wasn't like, when people said, let's go to the track, I wasn't like, oh man, coach is tripping. I was like, let's go get my shoes on. I'm going to smoke you guys when I'm out here. So my mentality was like afraid of failing, which really uh, helped me to succeed. So I, now it's my turn to ask a question. When did you decide like, this is college is not for me. I want to know, like when you went to Williams, right? You went yeah. to Williams, right? Yes, sir. When did yes, you sir. say like, when, when you said I'm going to Michigan, were, were people like, you tripping, Duncan? Oh man. I mean, there, there was a lot of noise, uh, throughout that whole process. I mean, it, it's funny now because people in this area will like go play division three. And, and the first thing they do when they commit is like, Oh, how'd you get to Michigan? And I didn't have that mindset going in. It was like, I, I had a very, very average high school career. I think at this point that's kind of been like well documented. Like I was like not playing my junior year. Um, like you were on the bench. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like not, like not checking, to, in, like not checking into games at points as a junior. Oh, you were like the Scalabrini of high school. I tell people that all the time. Like, <laughs> When you're the scal of the NBA, it's fine. When you scal in high school, you need to find a different profession. <laughs> yeah, man. It, it was one of those. Um, but, I mean, I, I ended up getting an opportunity. I, like, grew late. You know, I was a late, classic late bloomer. Uh, the coach at Williams at the time gave me an opportunity, and I just jumped on it. And he actually left after my first year. Otherwise, I would have stayed there all four, played for him all four, because that was my guy. Still is my guy to this day. But I, I felt a ton of loyalty to him. But then when he left, he took a Division One job. It kind of opened up the door. And things just escalated quickly. I mean, I, I remember him getting the job in middle of July. Late July, I'm, I'm hearing from Michigan. Early August, I'm on campus taking a visit, committed on my visit. And then two weeks later, I'm enrolled at the school. So in like a month, I go from gearing up for my second year at a 2,000-person school in the middle of nowhere to being on campus in Ann Arbor, you know, trying to compete in the Big Ten, uh, I, which I is just a You got to give me more. Hold on. You got to – who bridged that gap? Like, are they so, looking at – are they watching – Michigan no, is no. Williams? Like, come on. No, you give no. Me more than that. So, so this is where it starts to make sense is my coach at Williams, Mike Maker, was an assistant for John Beeline, coach at Michigan ah, at West we Virginia. So they had had a pre-existing relationship. We ran a lot of the same stuff. When I started to kind of think about leaving, uh, Coach Mike Maker said, you know, if you want, I can reach out and, and kind of poke around, see what see what Coach Beeline's thinking, if they have anything. And originally it was just going to be a walk-on, and uh, I, I didn't want to leave for a walk-on opportunity. So I was like, you know what? I'm just going to stay put. And then he watched some film and like 24 hours later, he calls me. He's like, yeah, we want to get you on campus for an official visit. And I'm like, holy shit, that escalated quickly. Yeah. Uh, and then once I, once I was on campus, it's like you're walking around. It's like, how could I ever turn this down? Actually, yeah. I remember to bring up my mom again. I remember being in the practice gym and on our visit. My mom had like no clue what like high major college basketball is. loves basketball you know drives all the way all around the country to come see me play but doesn't even understand like the jump that is we're in the practice facility and she asked the coach uh the assistant that's touring us around she goes so do they like bring out bleachers for the games or, or how does this work she thought that was where we played our games and i have to like nudge her and be like mom like this is a practice facility like what are you doing <laughs> it was like but that that just shows you like that whole that was so foreign to us. Obviously, I knew 
I understood, like I'd played against high major guys before, but like as you know, my mom or my family, like we, it was never in the cards for me to be playing at that level. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean that, okay. One more ahead. question. I mean, you, you flipped this on me, but I like it. No, Let's no, go. I, but I just, I've always, I've always wanted to ask you this ever since you like went to Miami and, and, and blown up. Right. They use the term poser mentality or what, what, what term imposter, did they use? Imposter syndrome. Yeah. Hey, did you have that at Michigan? And then, and then like, I'm not going to lie. Like, dude, I felt that too. Being in the NBA, dude, you got, you, you got to be a little sicko. And I know you're a little sick because you wanted to fight Marcus smart, which makes you fucking six. But if, <laughs> if, uh, if what, what is that? What is that? What does that mean? And, and how hard was that to break? I think I know what it means, but explain to me what you think it means. I, I think, you know, when I talk about my kind of career arc, I think a huge part of my career has been convincing myself and like growing that deep inner belief that I'm good enough. And that's not like in a negative way, like I don't have confidence because I think, and maybe you can relate to this, like I I know, I know you know that you're a killer. And when you get on the court, like nobody can, can fuck with you. But at the same time, when you make these jumps and you, and you have those moments, whether it's in uh, AAU where you're, you're sizing up Kobe Bryant or for me when all of a sudden I'm in training camp and looking at Dwayne Wade it's like holy shit this is like real like this is happening um, so I think part of those jumps like a, a really crucial part of it is like learning how to wrestle with those emotions and like overcome them and I think that the thing that's helped me the most obviously is like always having the box checked of knowing I'm prepared from like a preparation and, and work ethic standpoint that like I'm deserving of opportunities. Uh, because I think if you don't have that box checked, unless you're For just sure. like completely irrational confidence guy, which there are some, there's few sure. and far between. But if you don't have that box checked and you don't have a chance, yeah, I think having that box checked gives you a chance, but then even then nothing is guaranteed. So I think that's been like, honestly, the most fulfilling part of my career is like seeing that, that confidence compound over time. And yeah. then like, I'll even look at like a, a clip of me, like talking shit to somebody or like taking a shot. Even sometimes I'll miss it where it's like, holy shit, that's a ridiculous shot. And I'll just be like, damn, two years ago, I wouldn't even be looking at the rim right now. Like For let sure. alone, let alone letting that thing fly. Um, so yeah, I mean now this has kind of turned into a psychoanalysis of of my no, career. No, but I, just, I appreciate I just, it. No, but I I do think it's it's a real thing. Like for me, I knew what I was, and I was so fine with it. I was, and I always laugh at people that talk about being more than you are. And it's like I am like so. I don't know if you guys know this, right? Like just you knowing me, I am so comfortable with who I am but I'm also uncomfortable when I'm doing things that are out of my comfort zone. Like for instance, like, and I, it's my stats and my, like my winning percentage when I'm a starter playing with four other great players, it is so easy for me to impact winning. And I believe that I can impact winning. And I believe that I, that I impact winning more than other guys on the floor. But I also know when I'm out there asked to do too much, like I know I can't do it and it affects me all kinds of psychologically psychological ways. Right. But that's some of the shots you take, you got to be checked into a mental hospital 
to have irrational confidence like that. Like, how do you go from a posture to some of the shit that you do? What? What? Like, I don't understand that one. Like, I understand if you were irrational to begin with and you take those shots, but you go from that to that. That is, it's even irrational to think that someone could become that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, there are little moments where you like kind of like black out and you're like, wow, I, I really just shot that. Um, but but the other part of it is like, this is this has been like hardwired and like built into me. Like I, I give Coach Spo a ton of credit because he deserves it ever since day one. Like he used to make me run sprints in training camp when I would shot fake. Like oh, wow. he, he was, when I was an undrafted two-way yeah. and I was on the floor with Dwayne Wade and yeah. I passed up a, 30 foot bomb blow the whistle stop practice get on the line start run. running the rest the practice keeps going and i'm over there running because i'm too much of a quote-unquote coward to to be aggressive and shoot not to say he called me a coward but like that's when oh, i yeah. go to my that's when i go to my place and i like the self-deprecating like motivational like you coward saw like all this stuff whatever You talk about playing a role and having the self-awareness to do so. I think that that is an incredibly overlooked part of being oh, an NBA player. Believe me, I know. It's I'm like not, I'm irrationally confident in how humble I am and how good I am. I am extremely right. confident and arrogant at knowing that I am a role player. <laughs> right. Okay. But that lets you stay around for 11 years. Yeah. I. Yeah. I I think like it is so irrational of me being a role player that I believe that I can do anything in the world if I, I have such self-realization of who I am. You know, like people talk, oh my God, when you're on TV and you see the red light, what's that like? I'm like, yeah, I'm built for this, man. This is exactly what I'm supposed to do. Like, what do you think? Like, oh, uh, the other day I'm at my 14-year-old AAU game, right? And we're in a dogfight of a game. A girl, like the clock is running down, five, four, three, two, or four seconds. She hits the floor on the floor. I call timeout. She gets up. She makes the shot. Everyone on the team was upset by me that I called the timeout and we would have won if I didn't call the timeout, right? I'm like, I call that 100 times out of 100. It's the right play. I don't know what you guys are thinking. And by the way, I ain't listening to you. You play, I coach. This is what I do here, right? So I'm like rationally confident of who I am. And I'm, but I also know who I'm not. And I, that's why I, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked. But now it makes sense, Duncan. Now I understand why you got your ass in such good shape. Because you were passing up 30-foot bombs. And <laughs> yeah. You were running lines. Exactly. You know, I'm start doing that. Every time I pass up a shot, I'm going to chalk it up. I got to run like – I got to run a 17. Oh, my God. I'll be ripped up. Finally get that six-pack I've been working on all year. How do you embark that on a, on a younger player? Is it something that they have or they don't? Or is it something you feel that you can like kind of instill in somebody? Like the ability to, to buy into a role from a, from a coaching perspective or a mentor perspective? How, like you're a millennial, right? How old are you? Or you're Gen Z. 27. <laughs> I'm old. He's we're like, way out away from Gen Z. So he's a millennial. Yes, I think that's right. So so so, do you get sad? Like every every millennial I talk to, it's like they don't want the harsh reality. I don't feel like you're getting you. you know, let me tell the story of when I first met you. This was so great. <laughs> I tell the story on air too. 
So Jason Glushon says, you need to go see my boy, Duncan Robinson. You got to meet up with him one way or another. So all of a sudden, he I don't know who Duncan Robinson is, right? I know he's as a white you guy. As you shouldn't, but yeah. We're, and, we're at the, and we're at the Celtic game. So he's like, Blue's like, check him out. And like something about it. And he really didn't give me like enough insight. But I'm like, if Glue asked me to do something, I'm doing it, right? So he asked me, okay, go check. I want you to work out Duncan. I want you to see like if he's good enough. And I'm thinking, so if he's good enough for the NBA. So all of a sudden he's like, hey, Scal, I'm Duncan. I'm, I'm Glue's buddy. And I look and I'm like, what are you, fucking walk on? Like, seriously, like you're, you're, you're the guy from Michigan that I'm supposed to go work out and see if you're an NBA player? I'm saying this to Duncan Robinson. I'm not, I'm not like in my mind just like trying to hold back. Hey, man, um, oh, yeah, 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 I'll see you at the gym. It was like, really? You? You're the guy? <laughs> oh, I can totally understand. So, by the way, that would, that would, you you don't know this, but nine nine out of ten millennials, they'd be they'd be oh my god, they'd never recover from that mental health problems and all kinds of stuff. With just that meaningless comment from some no names like whatever I did in life. Wait, certainly yeah, certainly not a certainly not a no name, uh, a, a legend in the city of Boston to say the least. But um, it's funny. It it brings up some something interesting because my relationship with with Coach Spo. We he he coaches me very very tough and and I've I've always told him that that's how I want it to be um, yeah. and that's how honestly it's needed to be for my career and he'll make comments about how like whatever like psycho crazy type of way that I I, I use that as some twisted form of like motivation and and you know confidence um, so I I remember that interaction was like outside of the TD Garden. Um, and, and you were exactly like, you didn't mince any words. You, you said it exactly like that. Uh, and then we went on to, to have that workout in some like lifetime fitness outside of yeah. Boston, I think. Yeah. Uh, you were gearing up for the big three. Is that right? Is that what it I was? was? Yeah. And we, uh, yeah, we got after it for, for a day. What do you, what were the, the early receipts of that workout? What do you remember walking away from that one thinking? Yeah, get yourself. I, and I told you this. I said, and, and people like take this the wrong way. And I think you took it. Maybe you took it the right way. Maybe you didn't. I don't know. But I said, to be in the NBA, you have to be in phenomenal shape. Like just to say, and that doesn't mean that you're not in good shape now. It means that your your level of conditioning has to be so over the top. Like you. When you have an opportunity to shoot in the NBA, you have to take it and you can't allow like you running through 15 screens and sprinting the court the last five times, uh, take that away from you being able to make that next shot. Like I've seen the, like all the guys who get their shot off and they can come off screens. I was really impressed with your ability to move and shoot it nowhere. I never thought you would grow into what you grew into I, I don't know. I mean, anybody move and shoot like that, but, but I do think that being in like the phenomenal shape that you built yourself into allows you to just wear people out. And I, I, I think I brought up Ray Allen, Ray Allen over the course of a game wears people out. I don't know if I brought up Steph Curry. Steph Curry is in phenomenal shape, phenomenal shape. And that's the, re people don't understand like the level of conditioning it takes to, 
to read screens, move, get rid of the ball, back cut, come off to a handoff. Like just doing that and shooting a shot would be tough, let alone in an NBA game with everyone trying to stop you. So if you were going to play this game and you were going to be successful at this level, like your conditioning had to turn into what it is. I don't care how much you work or whatever. If you were in this type of shape, you weren't going to make it, but you had to get in this type of shape. So what did that workout look like? Scott, like, what are you having Duncan do in a scenario like that? A kid you don't really know much about. Are you just putting him through like standard drills or do yeah. you figure out sort of like over the course of the workout what you want to see him do? Yeah, it wasn't like, I, I, not, not, I, I, I shot him off the move a few times, but if I would have really known, it would have been like, shoot off his hand back right here. You know what I mean? And then like, I'll rebound, I'll throw it to you. I'll get to the top. You throw it back to me. We'll shoot off his hand off again. You know, like, I, I think, I think it's a lot of that. And like, I'd, I'd be curious, I've seen you work out before games, but, um, and, and another thing, another thing, how did you improve your, your shot speed the way you did? Cause it wasn't, it wasn't lights out like that. Like your shot speed, I'm not saying you had a hitch, but compared to now, if we, if we like mirrored them, there was probably a little bit of a hitch in there compared to what you do now. Right. Yeah. Um, once again, I mean, it's just kind of like the the daily vitamins of it. I give a ton of credit to our shooting coach in Miami, Rob Fodor. He is a he's kind of like a a mad scientist uh, when it comes to shooting. He has a I, I've never seen in my entire career. I've never seen I've seen people that are able to like in, advise shooting and like make little adjustments. Mm -hmm. But he's able to watch somebody and in live time be able to pick out exactly what it is that's like hindering their motion. And for us, we call them like little isms. Like I have, I have little things. If I start missing shots, that I that I start to fall back and resort to, um, and it's it's changing those and correcting those that he's helped me with a ton. So it's it's I think it's one of those things where like I always kind of had it, but it's just about being able to repeat your best version every time. And then once again, like you mentioned, really be able to repeat it after the demands of getting open. Which is what is exact? What's what's the hardest thing, in my opinion, to do um, in the NBA? Yeah, I, I just like the. So I just use obviously. It's not like I'm I'm not dumb. I know Duncan's white, and I know that he's not built like a tank or anything like that. So he his position would only be, you know, a guy who can you know catch and shoot and rip closeouts and finish at the rim, right? That's that's what I'm assuming at that point, right? But shot speed and conditioning would fall would, would come into that and for you to be elite like the way you become they're equally important you couldn't you couldn't just have a fast shot or you couldn't just be in great shape you actually right. had to get rid of both like both one had to go up and your and that shot speed had to improve and when i say that for all the people listening it was already a fast shot it just had to become like hyperspeed like really that's 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 and that's the deal and i and and it'll be interesting if if there's a trend set for people because if you got a hitch, man, I don't actually believe five years from now you're going to be able to play in the NBA. I think, I mean, you can be elite at getting downhill, I guess, but I don't think like the hitches, I, I think like Steph Curry sort of started this whole thing and getting rid of, he doesn't bring it up. Like Jordan brought it up or bird brought it up. I feel like five years from now, everyone will shoot the same way you guys do. Like just like you're, you're snapping through that that zone or whatever it is. So we'll see. I don't. That's my guess because I think the game evolves. You know, Trey Young snaps through the zone. A lot of people do that. I'd be curious in five years if we see anybody with 
sort of a Kawhi Leonard type of hitch. Yeah. Um, you, you actually, you left out a part of the workout, which was that we played one-on-one at the end. You beat me, right? I, I, I wasn't going to get into that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, what I was going to do is I was going to use that to transition into the scallenge. Oh, which was well documented in the Boston area. Um, (laughs) I don't know if it got the the national attention that it it deserves, but what was kind of the, the genesis of that, that thought. And and for people who maybe don't know, it's basically you, you were just challenging. You're probably sick and tired of hearing people say that they're better than you, which is just a ridiculous statement. And you basically just put an open challenge to everybody. All right, come play me a one-on-one. Is that basically what happened? So let I was so when I got done playing, obviously I mentioned earlier, I love basketball. I do. And when I got done playing in the NBA, go figure this one. I played in like every rec league. I also flew around the country and I wanted to go into like the, the hoodest of hoods of pickup games. I call people in Dallas. I'd go to Dallas, play pickup, you know, be the only white guy there, Philadelphia, LA, New York, whatever, right? So that was like I, love it. I always wanted to do it. Not I didn't. I didn't put it on Instagram you know, or anything like that. You know, I actually, I actually just wanted to do it for me. I know I'm crazy. I, I know I, it actually didn't happen because it wasn't on the gram. But I just wanted to see what it was like playing at different places, and so I went around the country, whatever. And I was playing. Wait, 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 wait. We we might need a couple stories from those days before we get into <laughs> right. the scallage. Just give me give me one gem. There's got to be a handful, but give me one. I mean, my my worst game I played was at Villanova, and Evan Turner, like he just laid into me one game. I'm like, dude, dude, my bad, my bad. All right, I got to pick it up. I get it. I don't know. I was fatigued. Maybe I, I drank the night before, whatever it was. Right. But, but no, in general, like this, who you see right now is who I am. Like I walk onto a court and I'm not, I don't, I don't walk in like, Oh no, what's going to happen. And I would, and I would say to be honest with you guys, going back, you know, like in the psychoanalysis, I never as a kid felt comfortable ever in any environment, except for when I'm playing sports. Like in school, I like I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, like talking to people and like doing small talk. Like, what am I doing with my life? I go and play sports. It's like, oh my god, this is like the greatest thing ever, right? Yeah. So that environment is still the exact same for me. I'm never afraid. I gotta say, I was afraid one time. I fouled Shaq so stinking hard, I thought he was gonna kill me. But besides the time, <laughs> I fouled Shaq and. Which is a funny story. Uh, besides that time, I've never actually been afraid of anything. You know, like I, like I've just I just feel like that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to play sports. This is what I I feel natural out there. I love it. I love the communication. I love the trash talking. I indirectly trash talk through people, and they had no idea that I'm trash talking them. It's so great, right? So besides that, so when I go into these environments, like people know who I am. I go up, I dap it up, and I go out there and I and I go and I hoop and. I don't really care what people think or say or anything like that. It's just how I'm wired. So, so th- that was fun to do. But going back to the challenge, played in this YMCA rec league. I dropped 60 in a game. And it was like, I wasn't trying to brag or anything like that. I was just like, yeah, I had a good game. I had 60 the other night in my, in my rec league. People, and so people got immediately started tweeting, oh, you suck, Scal. I'll, I'll beat you. And I'm like, listen, I may suck for an NBA player. Like, those guys are pretty good. But I don't suck compared to you. Like, you, you suck compared to me. I suck compared to Derrick Rose and Russell Westbrook and those guys. 
So let's do it. So we and we invite the city of New, all basically all New England can send in their videos. I just you know went one on one against five different guys, and they scored about what they don't recognize, like and what you and me do recognize. When you're in the NBA, there's all kinds of tells, right? Like if a guy puts his hand like that, you know what he's going to do. If a guy does a like a hesitation, you know what he's going to do. Well, all that stuff is like in real time in the NBA. You got to be so on top of the reads. It's not not speed. It's my. You can't look at me and say like my brain is slow. Like my brain is fast. Like my body might be slow, but I have to read whether a guy's going to shoot, drive, go to the middle, go you know pass. If if you're not reading those things, you're not playing in the NBA. And there's countless guys. 6'10", athletic, strong, and they don't read like the intricacies of the game. They don't see a hesitation dribble. They make, they don't move until the ball is passed. Duncan, I'm moving when the ball is on the gather. If I'm not, I'm dead. I'm dead in the water. So like that, that me having to analyze a game like that allows me to play a guy one-on-one. It's like, I can literally like in the middle of him, his inside out move, think what I'm eating for dinner and still challenge his shot. You know, it's not like I'm doing this against this high level, these people. So anyways, I do that. I watch him. Most guys who scored on me, they scored the first or second possession. And then once I figured them out, it was like, I've seen this a thousand times. You're uh, you like to drive left, go right. You like to step back, right. And all that. Like, I know that like within three possessions, these are players I've never played before. And then the sheer size of being six nine two fifty. You know, it's tough for people. So that's how it all played out. And, I, you know, it wasn't really that challenging. There's a, a legendary quote that came from that, which is that I'm way closer to LeBron than you are to me, yeah. <laughs> which is what you said, which is so incredibly true also. And it, that, it just needs to be reiterated. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, the, the footage of those games, uh, I've, I've – I've sifted through the footage plenty of times. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of gems in that. Sometimes, like my favorite is when you just decide at some point that you're just fed up and you're just going to play absolute bully ball. Yeah. Like this game's gone on too long. Like, yeah. and, and not that they're scoring, but it's just like you know you settled for a couple of jumpers, maybe you missed one. It's like all right, I'm I'm going to end the game now, and you just yeah. like. Yeah just barrel your chest into him and like just get a layup every single time. And and a couple of the guys you played were like college level players, yeah. no? Yeah, it's just it's just the size. The size is a big deal, you know. Like like they think that every, like the six nine guys that they're around playing at the rec center are slow, you know. Like yeah. like I said, I cannot. I'm not playing eleven years if I'm not reading the game at a high level. If I'm not like moving my feet, which by the way, Duncan, if I didn't play in in, in the NBA, I would also not be very good, you know. Like that's there's there's a reason why I every day every day every day. I throw out the speed ladder before practice or before a game. And I do speed ladder work for 10 minutes every single day to refine my defensive movement. So I'm not like off balance. Cause you know, probably, you know, if you get off balance, you're dead meat. There's like, I always look at recovery factor. I cannot, I cannot recover in the NBA. I can't get beat and then use my strength and athleticism to get back into play. I like the attention to detail that I have to have to defend at the NBA level is unheard of in, in, in the world that of not in the NBA. And I'm sure a lot of guys, like I, there's a lot of guys that don't get the speed ladder out. I did it for 11 years, every practice, every workout, every day I show up at with a ball and my speed ladder in every single game or, or workout I ever go to 
because I want to refine all my defensive movements because I knew for me to play, I have to defend. And I ended up becoming a really good defender because of it, which on the contrary to what people think, because white guys can't defend. They just think like you, you can't move, but if you can refine your balance and your, and your movements, you can, you could end up, you know, being a decent defender. So speaking of your defense, can we get back to the Shaq foul story? Cause you left like a hidden gym there and then yeah, sort of breeze yeah, by. Yeah. So Shaq gets an offense. This is, I tell you, this is like the most, this, I felt like a, I'll tell you the story. So Shaq gets an offensive rebound and the coaches say, you're either 50% shooter. You got to foul him and don't let him get an end one. So he gets an offensive rebound and I'm behind him. Right. And he goes down and he goes up and I'm like, I got a foul Shaq. And I come down two hands as hard as I can. Like, like almost like a horse collar, but I'm just going to like, like I'm going to just destroy this man, right? Like it's not going to be good. And I'm afraid as I'm doing it, like, damn, this is Shaq. I can't believe I'm doing this to Shaq. And I went down, I went to grab him. And instead of my hand, like, see how my hand could wrap around my shoulder? It was like I hit like submit. I just went, boom, he went up and he dunked it. So as soon as he went up and dunked it, I'm thinking, oh my God, he's going to kick my ass. Like, I don't, I, this is like the worst position I could be in. And I almost would rather him have kicked my ass for the fact that he didn't even recognize that I was there. <laughs> it was way worse for my ego. Like, I was thinking to myself, like, oh, shit, I'm going to get my ass kicked by Shaq in front of everybody. And he just walked to the free throw line. Like I, I, like, I felt so insignificant. I almost quit the NBA at that point. I was just like, <laughs> you know what, I'm probably not an NBA player. If I gave this guy everything I had and he went up and dunked it like I wasn't even there. So that was like the only time I was actually afraid of another human being because, you know, he's massive. But that, that, that made me feel so insignificant. You uh, obviously did not quit the NBA. You went no. on to have an 11-year uh, NBA career. Looking back, you know, you're, you're in year 11. What would your advice be to a younger Brian Scalabrini at that point? Is there, is there something really oh, yeah. significant that you took away? Like one thing, two things, whatever it might be. Yeah, like um, probably the same thing I'll tell you. Like, because you're going to get like $80 million this offseason, maybe $100 million this offseason. Like you, you have to, like that doesn't matter. It doesn't. It really doesn't matter in the scheme of life. On the contrary to what 99.999999% of the people think in this world, that money is like it, it's supposed to change you. And all of a sudden now you're staying at your mom's house. Now you're going to be living on Lake Winnipesaukee. And then you're going to go, you're going to rent a yacht and go into the, like, the, the Greek Isles and all that bullshit. Right. <laughs> like I, I am. I, and no matter where I've been and what I've done and where I like, you know, the happiest I am is when I'm playing basketball. I, I know it sounds so fucked up, but it is hundred percent accurate. When I am in the gym, like accomplishing and doing like the things I do, which I, the things when I am walking into that Philadelphia gym and I'm the only white guy there and people are like, what you doing here? White Mamba. Like that is who I really am. And I think along the way, I got sort of like not, and this sounds so negative. It's not right. It's not a negative thing, but it like I got so caught up in being like, like an NBA player that should be doing NBA things. I give two shits about all that in my life. I really don't. And at the time, I thought I should care, but I would. I'd rather have stayed the same thing. And now, as in, as I'm older. I'm like, you know how old people don't care, right? <laughs> I'm like the old guy. I'm actually. 
back to who I was before. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people do. I'm, I'm just going to be who I know I am. So like all the, you should always remain the Williams guy who was like with his mom and his, and at the practice facility and be like, mom, 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 this is why, where they play the games. Like you should always be the poster, right? In pop, in pop poster. Like you should always be that guy because that is the best version of Duncan Robinson. The best version of me was like the, you know, like second round pick, you know, fighting for everything, like super confident and all that. And what I am and what I do never like, never fronting or stunting as the kids would say. I've, I've learned that. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable advice first off. And I think it rings true in, in so many ways, but it's also, that's really hard, especially oh when God. you're surrounded by oh, yeah. the, the lifestyle that comes with the NBA, because you look around you and it's like, like I've had so many moments where, it's not like frustration, but it's like, I don't know. Like there's, there's some sort of negative side of all of those luxuries becoming normalized. Like it's, it's the, the fact that all of a sudden now, like, you know, you, you get on a a regular flight and it's like, Oh, this isn't chartered. And and I, and that's something that like, I've, I, I, I'm in year three and, or finished year three, I guess. And I like actively fight. I can't even imagine what that would be like for like a Udonis Haslam year eight, 17, 18, whatever sure. it is, or you playing 11. Like it, it's hard. Well, Duncan, I just like, just, just ask yourself this, right? Let's, let's make yourself like be at arm's distance away from Duncan Robinson at all times. Like you can go to the Greek Isles, but call Jason Glushon and have him call a guy where you can get a nice workout in do a two a day when you're in the Greek Isles on your yacht or whatever it is. Right. Just stay at arm's distance away. Like don't get too far away from Duncan Robinson. Just, I would always say like be an arm's distance away from Scal. Like it's, it's fine. And I think it's like healthy to like step away. No question. But I I wish like I always stayed an arm's distance away from like the scallenge guy from the from the, the second round pick that you by the way I used to love to play summer league love summer league why and I look back and I why did I stop playing summer league I fucking love it I love it I love playing summer league why would I stop playing I shouldn't played in year ten in year eleven why do people stop playing I don't know because everyone tells them you should stop you're getting old you should stop and screw that I wish I would have. Like, like, I love being in L.A. and working out, like, a time with Rob McClanahan or, you know, like, always stay, whatever you do, just stay at arm's distance away at max, at max from Duncan Robinson. I think that if you do that, like, you're, you're still going to square up on Marcus Smart, even though I don't think that's a smart thing to do. Like, you're still going to be, like, that guy <laughs> if, you, if you maintain an arm's distance away. You can still, like, you can still stunt. Like you could take the private jet just when you land <laughs> in the gym. You can. You can't. Just know, like, or or like do do a form shooting, whatever you do to get the stroke that you get, right? Like this stay in this, you can do that if you stay close to who you are. And I, I promise you, you will look back on your career and you will love your career if you stay an arm's distance away from who you are. And I love, I really love who you became. I really do. I I I admire it when I watch. I, I almost like in a way, 
like I'm inspired by that, even though I've never taken the shots that you take. That's fucking insane, <laughs> right? I just I'm I'm just in really from where you were to where you're at, I'm really like I, I think you talked about the human mind. Like, just don't stay an arm's distance away from running lines when you pass up a shot. I love it's, that. It's so eloquent. It's it's very wise. But I was hoping you'd give him the opposite advice because we're getting ready to head out to LA for the summer to do some podcast stuff. So I was hoping you'd maybe tell him to like live it up a little bit. <laughs> no. But I, I think I mean, maybe you can, you're. But just whatever, whatever, bring a fucking ball to the club. I don't know. Like, just stay, <laughs> like, like, just don't get too far away. Just I'm mean, trust me, like MJ Jordan back in the day, they say that if he went out the night before, he was up at 8 a.m. doing one dribble pull-ups, one dribble pull. He 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 drank the night before. He said 500 one dribble pull-ups. So he always stayed an arm distance away from being Michael Jordan, right? So like I think that that's important. I really do. Davis mentions us going to LA that we're working on podcast stuff. I'm going out there to work out. I just want to make that very clear. And I'm, I'm living in the Valley too. So I'm not I'm trying a mix to, of everything. I'm staying in the Valley. Keep why? my head down. I'm where trying to change the where narrative. Do you, where do you train at in the Valley? Are you training in the Valley? Yeah, I'm working with uh, a couple of trends. Well, Noah is in, uh, is, is in Burbank. Um, and then somebody else that I'm, I'm working out with a guy by the name of Mike G doing my strength and conditioning with, uh, who's, yeah. who's really good with that. He's out in the Valley as well. So trying to stay out of the way, you know, stay in arm's distance. Uh, I love, I love that advice. I, I think it, it absolutely rings true. Um, all right. Well, this, this has been awesome, man. We, we've actually taken you way past what we, we had promised uh, yeah, mostly because it, it just kind of flowed. Yeah. Uh, we're going to wrap it up here. We have our undrafted segment. So basically we're going to, we're going to give you three topics. I'm going to lead it off. We want the, the underappreciated, the undrafted, if you will, of each of the topics. Uh, so I'm going to start it off. I'm going to say member of the 2008 Celtics team that basically was didn't get the love that you felt oh, he deserved. Uh, so the, the underappreciated of that team? Yes. James Posey. Got to be. Yeah, it's a great answer. Got to be. So is, do I have to give another one for no, that No, no, no. Just that. That's It's, it's that. a quick okay. hitter. Quick the most hitter. Un, yeah. Underappreciated from a national standpoint? Yes. Posey. In, you know how it is. On, in, internally, you Everyone knows. It. Right. Yeah, okay. Got it. Posey. Go Dave, ahead. what do you got? Well, hold on. Wait a minute. For what about for those of us that aren't insiders? Why James Posey? Oh man, because he used to he used to stunt his ring like you ain't got this. You guys got to work hard. You don't know what it's like. He would go to Garnett like you don't know what it's like to win this ring right here. So like it was almost like man. At sometimes you're like man, shut up. You and your ring talk. You know like all that. So it was it was like he had what we wanted, and then then it was it, it was and he would call Paul Pierce out like. Like that, he did all that, you know, and that was important. Like, dude, it, it, you got to call people out. That's how the NBA is. I think that's how the NBA should be, but it might not right. be that anymore. But you got to call people out. Like, you got to make sure that everyone is taking 1% and getting better. 1% better. That's 15 guys. That's 15% better. That's a ring versus first round exit. Got it. Makes sense. Thanks for, for the explanation. I'll, I'll take the second one here. We've talked a little bit about the perks that come with being an NBA player, staying arm's length away from those sometimes. But I'm curious, do you have an underappreciated perk of your new gig of being the the commentator, the perks that come with that role? Um, so, yeah, I, I, I w my popularity in Boston is more now than even as a player. Go figure that. So Love it. I do... I, 
I'm 10 to one, 10 to one in the money I make in appearances or endorsing companies as a broadcaster than as a player. You would never have guessed that. Yeah, that's surprising. Really? Yeah. Like I have a pasta sauce. I have a my own alcoholic drink. Like it's, yeah. I, I'm I, still I, arms I, distance away from being scattered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like you're big time in us. I don't know. No, no, no. no. It's, 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 it's a little obnoxious, but you know, like it's not obnoxious. If you know me, you got to know me. If you don't know right. me, people who don't know me think I'm obnoxious. People who know me are like, Oh yeah. It's like, he's like, I told you, I'm, I told you at the beginning, I am supremely confident in who I am and what I am not. So yeah. I will always be an arm distance away from that guy, whoever that guy is. I'm always like, know exactly who I am and who I am not. Yeah. The, the pasta sauce guy. Yeah, I, uh, I'd, I'd rather be an alcohol guy, like, you know, hot chicks serving alcohol, like, you know, the drink girls and stuff like that. So it's much better to be in an alcohol business than the pasta business. But hey, man, you got to do what you got to do. I uh, I meant it when I said this guy's a legend around here. He's got his own pasta sauce and his own his own drink. That's special stuff right there. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to need need something. I got to try it out also. Yeah, as well. you, you, you have to, we have to maybe we'll do a workout together. I like that. Yeah. Um, all right. You uh, you obviously watch every game. You're dialed into every game. You do your your pregame, you know, all the notes and everything. Is there a player in the NBA that sticks out to you as being just generally underappreciated? Underappreciated in the league. Yeah, in the league, a few guys. Um, I only need the, one. Yeah, Kendrick Kendrick Williams. I like him. Wow. Um, I think he's like underappreciated. Um, my answer. boy Pat Connaughton underappreciated. Oh, yeah. uh, Middlesex Magic home, Legend. That's a Homer pick. Homer pick. Middlesex I Magic. Think, I think he's. I think he's good. I think he's. He, I think he's good. I think he's he, like he needs to be out there more. Um, I mean, there's a lot of guys. Clint, Clint Capella. You people yeah, are kind of figuring it out now. He's underappreciated. Um. Yeah, that suffices. That's that, that's a good three right there. I like that. Yeah, yeah that's I mean, two I can more go than on and on. There's like there's like a guy and you know, before the playoffs, Bridges from Phoenix, like he's underappreciated. Yeah. I can go yeah. on and on. I I recognize all the underappreciated guys. I got my eye out for those guys. Come on, right. love it. Yeah. Um, all right, Scott. Well, hey, we we really appreciate the time. Um, like I got said, it. we we took you longer than expected, but uh, a lot of gems in this one. So, so thank yeah, you for the one. wisdom. Arms and, distance away, Duncan. Arms I love distance, it. baby. Like, no I'm, matter I'm what. locking that one in. I'm writing that one down. Don't, yeah, don't worry about just that. Just have like, uh, take, you know, like you said, three things, like hit three people to make sure you're an arm distance away. And that's all you got to mention. Is that an arm distance move? That's all you have to mention. I like it. Great stuff. All right, man. Th thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. And, uh, hopefully I'll, uh, I'll see you or, or talk to you soon. Sound good. Thank you.